From The Ringer, I'm Tyler R. Times. When I spoke to NFL star Cam Newton in January, his mindset was clear. On my whole career to be here in Charlotte. Cam won't be getting that wish. He was released by the Carolina Panthers in March. Cam is a complex figure, and my interest in him goes far beyond his exuberant smile and transcendent style of play. Cam broke the glass ceiling in American athletics, ascending to a place in the sport that few black quarterbacks have ever reached, making his fall that much more dramatic. Over the past year, I've traveled the country speaking to coaches and teammates, friends and family, reporters, and even briefly to the man himself, trying to unravel the enigma that is Cam Newton. I uncover contradictions at every turn. How can the hardest worker on the team be depicted as a bad leader? And how can a franchise icon with the NFL MVP and Super Bowl appearance on his resume be so abruptly cast aside? The Ringer NFL Show presents The Cam Chronicles. The series premieres Monday, July 13th. Where's the love, Jimmy? Where is the mother fucking love? You are feeding off the violence and the despair of the drug trade. And because he wasn't ready to get real with the story, just like you, the culture of drugs, that shit caught up to him. I got the shotgun, you got the briefcase. It's on the game though, right? You gotta let me live like I need to live. You tell Avon, Stringer, and Darnett, all of them, to leave me be. Be cadaverous, motherfuckers. All right, we continue to make our way through season two. We are now on episode six, Van, all prologue. Although it's called all prologue, um, it's amazing how many conclusions this wraps <laughs> in this particular episode. We um, unfortunately come to another, it wasn't a shocking death, but one of those deaths that people still talk about in The Wire, which is, of course, uh, what happened with uh, D'Angelo. And then we, it's such a powerful, well-written episode because we not only have D'Angelo meeting his end, we also have Omar and the court scene, which continues to be, held up as perhaps the greatest scene in wire history. Mm-hmm. And we can certainly, we're certainly going to take a, a deep dive into that as in, as we are into D'Angelo, who we have discussed before on this podcast and did a character deep dive on him. But now that his storyline has concluded, although the reverberations and the, the ramifications from what happened to him, that will continue to go on for a few seasons in the wire. Um, this is the end of the character itself. Um, so what were some of your takeaways in this, man? This episode to me has a lot to do with, uh, I have something written down, a phrase that I like, uh, how the sausage is made. You see a lot of the inner workings. And I love another word that I love to say, you guys have heard on this podcast before, machinations of things. And they kind of come Ooh. together uh, in this episode. I'm looking at, you You finally see the, the relationship between Prop Joe and the Greeks is finally sort of uh, illuminated. You start to see... Yeah, the, the picture's forming. The picture's forming, that there's a relationship between Pop, Prop Joe and the Greek, and that that is the way that a lot of the good dope, 
the drugs, period, are getting into West Baltimore. We don't quite know that yet, but we're starting to put the pieces together as where the drug trade in West Baltimore is actually originating. Um, the whole, we, we get a, a brilliant scene where a dancer in the club breaks down the actual ways that the girls that are imported from these foreign countries are treated, what their life is like, how that system actually works. You're seeing how that sausage is made. And, um, I, and I have to be honest, uh, you know, at the time I was just thinking about what was my actual level of knowledge about sex trafficking. And it was very little. Mm. And I admit I completely glossed over this storyline. And it's one of added to the long list of reasons why David Simon and why this series was really ahead of his time. We didn't care about that issue then. We've mentioned that on a, a on a couple podcasts now. And I know I didn't care about it then. It seemed like it was in the way then, but now that we understand the gravity and the scope of sex trafficking in this world, it just makes it hit that much harder and Absolutely. that much more significantly. That mm -hmm. much more harder, that much more significantly. And you get to see just what a system it really is. Not just the importing of the girls, getting them through customs, but to control every aspect of their daily life. Uh, stun guns and moving them around so they don't get close to John's. It's an entire thing that exists both on the front end of smuggling them in the country and the back end of keeping them controlled. And it's laid out perfectly in one scene. You get to see some meetings, uh, like a union meeting, where you get to see how kind of how they negotiate back and forth and get the things that they want and what Fran Sabaka's into. Just a lot of stuff and something else. Even seeing how Stringer himself the criminal mastermind that he is, Stringer Bell, <laughs> um, how he farms out the killing of D'Angelo, how that killing coordinated happens inside of the prison, set up, you get to see kind of how some of these different dots are put together, even behind the scenes, how is a prison hit um, sort of uh, executed. Uh, all of these things, this episode was a lot about processes to me. Even by which, even the process, because because even the sort of the juxtaposition of Omar's process of survival between Levy's process of survival, when Omar calls that out, you kind of kind of get to see how they are the different in where they do their business, but exactly the same in how they're using the ecosystem of the drug trade in West Baltimore to propel their lifestyle. So a lot of this was just kind of about, you know, that part of it. And I really, really enjoyed this episode. I'll say this before I stop. Episode six, season two, is a hidden gem of an all-time important Wire episode. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Could not agree more. It, 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 we, you never talk about it. But when I was watching it, I was taken by the amount of weight, importance, um, its place in wire lore almost can't be debated. Did you felt the same way? I felt the same way. And um, just this this week, I got into a conversation with a friend of mine, my buddy Vince, who is an unofficial television critic and somebody whose opinion that I trust. And he hadn't watched The Wire since it first was out. So he was just like, yeah, I thought about rewatching it, but man, that's season two. It just wasn't that good. And I was like, time out. I was like, look, you need to separate yourself from people who claim to love The Wire. The people who really love The Wire really fuck with The Wire, fuck with season two heavy. Yeah. And that's not to say that you 
fuck with it more than you would season one or season three or season four, some of the seasons that are commonly talked about as the best seasons of The Wire. But it is an underrated season for a lot of reasons. And I think we all forgot, a lot of people, uh, even including those who watch it regularly, that this episode in particular they forget it happened in season two. Mm-hmm. So when you talk shit about it, because I think people get it confused sometimes and think, that, and think it happened at three or whatever. Sometimes, you know, they just kind of blur together because Omar's brilliance is, is throughout this whole um, series. But this episode was almost flawless. Almost yeah. flawless. I mean, I, I would say it was probably flawless or whatever. Um, but you can, I think, definitely hold it up as one of, the five or 10 best episodes of the entire series because of the writing, how it delivered uh, and paid off certain storylines, how it concluded certain storylines. I mean, it, it really was, as you so appropriately called it, a hidden gem. So, like, you know what I compare season two to? 808s and heartbreaks. Hear me out. I'll tell you why. So we're riding along in our Kanye West love, right? When that was still a cool thing to do. We're loving yay. <laughs> we've, we've gotten graduation, right? Uh, excuse me. We've gotten college dropout. Then we've gotten late registration. Then we've gotten graduation. And we, we kind of feel like we know who Kanye West is, right? We know what it is. Like his, we know how it's going to sound. We know what he's going to bring. And then all of a sudden, I remember the Love Lockdown single drops. And people were like, yo, what the fuck is this? And people were like, yo, I, I don't know if this is what this was. That's kind of like how the first episode of season two is. We felt like we, uh, we knew what The Wire was. We had an idea of the type of entertainment we were in store for. And then all of a sudden, we see some Polish guys at the dock and we go, yo, wait. And so initially, people were like, this is crap. This sucks. This, this, like, like initially, 808s wasn't what anyone would think would be one of the more influential works of Kanye West's career, it ends up maybe being the most influential. Because when you look at its place in not just the rest of his work, but in in, in hip-hop and what it was able to do, it kind of changed the structure of music very fundamentally in a way. And I can make that same argument about season two of The Wire. I think that season two of The Wire, with this ability to juggle opposite storylines to give you two different storylines besides the cops and everybody else it gives you the cops then it gives you the port then it gives you what's going on in west baltimore that ends up being the template for the rest of the show it ends up being the cops west baltimore and the schools the cops west baltimore and politics the cops west baltimore and then um what goes on in the newspaper in season five and especially more when you kind of see this particular season in the full run of the show, you appreciate not just how influential it is, but just how good it is. You go back and you listen to 808s now, obviously people know how influential it is now. You see just why it was needed, why it was appropriate, creatively how he got there. It makes more sense because you have more context. Sometimes, not all the time, sometimes the art, beats the consumer in the race and you got to slow down a little bit. And I think season two is one of those times. And if you're not enjoying season two of the wire and you're rewatching with us, um, I would tell you that after you get through your full rewatch, come back, check it out again. And anybody who hasn't watched it in a while, come back, 
and check it out again because I am riding for season two and I think that it doesn't get its just due even still today. If I took your music analogy, um, uh, you know, the, the, the music analogy I would make with season two, it's, it's bad. Not, not bad as in it's a bad season, as in bad Michael Jackson's album, mm. bad, okay? Because Michael Jackson came out the gate with Off the Wall. He then hit us with Thriller, one of the greatest selling albums of all time. Some say the number one pop album ever, right? Well, who wouldn't say that? I don't know who wouldn't. But just Uh, in case there's a couple people who would not say that, I'm just going to account for those (laughs) those people. But all that being said, Off the Wall is still better. Let's not even sidetrack this with that. (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right. So you go from, from that to Thriller to Bad. When Bad came out, it was almost characterized like it was a disappointment. Like it was a failure because it did not sell as much as Thriller. Like that's like, and it, that's sort of inconceivable to look at bad that way. And it was purely just based off numbers. Like it was a drop off. Meanwhile, when you go to the track listing of bad and you see how it's aged over the years, it ages incredibly well. Smooth Criminal is one of the best videos of all time. You have Leave Me Alone, Dirty Diana, I Can't Stop Loving You, Liberian Girl. The Way You Make Me Feel was Man a hardcore back. Man in the Mirror. Man, I mean, it is track after track after track. And I realized that Thriller was, to a lot of people, the perfect album. Nothing failed on that album. And just because you might have, what was it? Um, uh, like maybe Liberian Girl didn't go as hard as something on Thriller. All right, right that's cool. Right. But because it was constantly compared to Thriller, people could not appreciate bad. And it's the same with season two of The Wire. It's constantly compared to one and three and four. And it and therefore people consider it to be a shitty season. And it wasn't. It just stood on its own. So it's okay if it stood on its own and when you see everything in context, you realize season two, I will forever call it this, is the glue season of The Wire. I, it, looks, it bridges I, you from the Barksdales to everything that happens in season three, four, and five. And let's be real, Bad still sold, what, like 20 million? Like, it, and that was like, considered a failure. A so failure. <laughs> Boy, think about how shit has changed. And how you fail with 20 mil? Hey, what, was it 20 million? Make sure that I'm right about it. Let me look this up real quick. I'm almost sure. How many? How much? How much did Bad sell? Thirty-five million. Thirty-five million. <laughs> how you fail with thirty-five million records sold? You know what I'm saying? And that's the same thing. We like what a great, uh, a great observation. Because even if you don't like season two of The Wire, it's still better than ninety-nine percent of the television that's out there. So. I mean, and we're saying all of this because this episode is so good. It's so good that on 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 a rewatch, I'm wondering how anyone could ever think that season two wasn't great when you have so much that goes on in this one episode. But that that's enough of me going crazy about. Yeah, season well, two. Let, let's talk about what goes on in this episode. So here's like a brief recap for everybody. So Nikki uh, or Nico as the Greeks have affectionately named him. Uh, He gets more heavily involved with them. Uh, He's gone now. Let's look at his criminal trajectory. He's gone from just thieving a little bit, selling some hot items, putting it out there, to now he's just like full on, I'm all all in this drug trade. Uh, And this is a very noteworthy transition, I think, for season two. The detail, as in Lester, Bunk, Beatty, they figure out the pattern for how they're shipping things illegally onto the docks as they try to figure out what Frank Sabaka is up to, and 
as a side, what is with these girls who were in the can? Um, just like they cloned the pages in season one. Well, now they've graduated and they're cloning computers to figure out what's happening on the docks. Then we see two huge storylines kind of wrapped up. Stringer successfully puts the hit on D'Angelo using a DC plug. And then you have what happened to William Gant. That finally comes to its ultimate resolution. They're both tied together. Uh, Omar, the court scene, which we're going to get way into in just a moment. Uh, he shines in court. Bird is successfully convicted uh, for the murder of Gant. Um, and he was the one who, uh, this citizen was the one who witnessed D'Angelo killing a man in the high risers, which led to his demotions, which, his demotion into the pit, which has ultimately led to his death, which mm-hmm. we see here in um, this particular episode. So with that being said, we know that we've discussed D'Angelo and did a character, character deep dive into him earlier this season. Because of his death, it warrants another one. So now, Van, we've seen the full scope of who D'Angelo is from being, uh, I would say, you know, he was he was certainly somebody who always had a dual consciousness. But over the course of this uh, series, or at least in these first season and a half that he was in it, we saw that consciousness just fully mature. Because at the point at which he dies, he has said, fuck the Barksdales. He's trying to serve this time and live in it and sit in it. And with no help from them, because I think he's registered in some and a big part of himself that this is kind of what he deserves, given everything that's happened, not just the shit he actually did, but all the shit that he stays silent about. So he feels like that he needs to stand on his own, even if it's essentially costing him freedom for the rest of his life. Mm. When they kill D'Angelo, they kill truth. Truth died. D'Angelo's death was among the most honorable deaths that we've seen uh, on the show. Um, There are people who died sort of randomly. There are people who died uh, fittingly. Um, D'Angelo Barksdale died honorably. Uh, What he searched for his whole life was bravery. He searched for, when you watch him through the first season, he searched for the bravery to be who it, who it was that he really was. He, he searched for the bravery to be um, a guy that wasn't a part of the exploitation, the degradation, um, the human casualty of the drug war. It wasn't for him, but he felt like he had no choice. He felt like he had uh, no way to access other parts of himself. He wasn't courageous enough um, to break away from the family business. He was getting too much pressure. It was his mother. It was his uncle. It was his, his baby's mom. It was everyone telling him exactly who it was that he had to be. And as much as he didn't want to be that, uh, he could never muster the strength to be anything else. This is the episode where D'Angelo Barsdale, finally, before he meets his maker, summons up the courage to do what everyone in society is trying to do is turn their backs on systems that don't empower them. And he did that. And he made that choice. Uh, He had been flirting with it. But this was the episode where his mother couldn't talk him out of it, where his uncle couldn't talk him out of it. No one could talk D'Angelo out of being who he truly was. Prior to this, someone always was able to do it. Donette, String, not so much Stringer, 
uh, Avon. They were always able to talk him into playing his role. He rejected it. He rejected it. Um, and in rejecting it, he died free. He died free of the burden of trying to be who he wasn't. That's why the scene where they're talking about the great Gatsby, a, 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 a book where a, a man is chasing a fictitious version of himself in order to convince everyone around him that he is something that he's not. It is the seminal work of um, being an American imposture, of excess, of what it means to be who you truly are um, as compared uh, to what you want people to see you as. He's saying that the past is always with us. And where we come from, what we go through, how we go through it, all this shit matters. I mean, that's what I thought he meant. Go ahead. Like at the end of the book, you know? Boats and tides and all. It's like you can change up, right? You can say you somebody new, you can give yourself a whole new story. But what came first is who you really are. And what happened before is what really happened. D'Angelo, in that scene where he's talking about The Great Gatsby and he's talking about how he can see exactly through to the center of the character, it's because he realizes he's that guy. He was who he was, and he did what he did. Like, putting on airs for people. And because he wasn't um, ready to get real with the story, that shit caught up to him. He's pretending to be something that he's not, just so he could, like that scene in season one where D'Angelo is primping himself and getting all ready and getting correct, as they say in West Baltimore. That's him putting on the spoils uh, of the drug war that he's involved in, of the drug trade that he's involved in. But those clothes don't mean anything to him. The house doesn't mean anything to him. None of it means anything to him. He's a prisoner. He finally, in prison, was able to escape prison. Um, and when you watch this entire episode, you can't help but think if it was going to happen to him, at least it happened to him when he was free. Yeah, it, it is such an irony, a purposeful one that Davis, uh, Simon and Ed Burns explored to make D'Angelo feel his most empowered when he was in the least empowering place, which was prison. Mm -hmm. But that was a, a, a statement in itself that the only way he could actually break through or break free rather from his family is by being locked up, yeah. which says a lot about the kind of grip that his family had on him, both in a physical way and very much in the emotional sense. Um, the scene that he had with his mother, to me, is very powerful. And if not for the courtroom scene, which we're, again, going to discuss in a moment, there might have been the most powerful scene in this entire episode. And the reason to me that's so powerful, it speaks to me on a personal level because it reminded me so much of, you know, as everybody knows, all the controversy I was involved with with Donald Trump and everything else. But the conversations, it reminded me of the conversations my mother and I had out, uh, after that happened. And even though my mother had raised me through many different incidences to be the type of person who did what I did, she still didn't want me to do that. Or she still um, felt a level of, of of protectiveness because that is what I had done mm. and dealing with the results of that. And so D'Angelo's mother is the same way. He gave the example of what she did when he was younger because he wanted her to know you raised me to be the 
the type of person that's doing exactly what I'm doing right now. So while I appreciate you trying to protect me, that you want me out and that your mother's concern is kind of overriding your sensibilities here, understand that from the beginning, you have raised me to be this person. So don't feel guilty about how I want to serve this time or how I choose to live the rest of my life when you've prepared me to do exactly this. And it's a hard thing for sometimes a parent to register is that they have prepared their child for sometimes the worst consequences, the consequences they don't want them to face, but yet they prepared them to face some of those consequences nevertheless. And so that scene always strikes uh, a real chord uh, with me. And on a smaller note, Hadn't picked up on this until I watched it this time. When Avon looked at D'Angelo in the hallway, which is the last time they will have laid eyes on each other, there was a dual recognition that was happening there. There's no, you know, other than him saying, hey, D, and him turning around, there's no dialogue really there. They all sold that everything that needed to be said or recognized was sold just based off their body language and based off how they were communicating with their eyes. and. You can't tell me that Avon, who we unpacked in the previous episode, had more to do with D'Angelo's death than I think a lot of people either remember it or don't recall how he basically told um, Stringer, yo, if he ends, winds up meeting a fate, that's just how it is. It's felt like that Avon knew this the last time I'm going to see this dude. Mm. Now, maybe he he didn't think about that in the physical sense. Maybe he thought about it in the emotional sense of, I can see based off his behavior, his actions, the way he's looking at me now, this dude don't want shit to do with me. I can't convince him anymore. I have to let him go. Mm -hmm. And D'Angelo was definitely looking at him in the same way, is that I know who you are. I've been exposed to the true ugliness that you have inside of you. I can't fuck with you anymore. We're done. Just in eye communication. And that scene never really crossed my mind until watching it again this time. When I watched the scene, I... Uh, I took it as Avon losing something. Um, I, I think that when Avon, I think I agree with you. I think Avon inadvertently gave a green light on uh, on D'Angelo. What I can't figure out is whether or not he passively aggressively gave a green light on him. I know that he that he definitely empowered Stringer with that conversation to do what he was going to do, but. I can't figure out whether or not there was any hint of intentionality to it or not. It's it's I've really gone back and forth with that. Um uh cuz maybe you know, he didn't expect him to do that. Um but he was, you know how sometimes we all think out loud. That's he what was I'm saying. Thinking out loud. That's yeah. what I'm saying. And so in 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 the scene when they passed each other, it was a a rare way to view Avon because especially with the dynamic of him and Dee's relationship, because it's the first time you ever see them where D'Angelo's strong and Avon is weak. It's the only time that you see them that way. Any other time that you've seen them, uh, Avon has been um, admonishing, maybe with the one, maybe, maybe when, uh, uh, when when D'Angelo stands up for Wallace, you see him as strong in the scene with Avon, but you don't see Avon as weak in that scene. Normally, when you see them, it's Avon, uh, Avon's projecting strength. Avon's either giving orders 
or telling D'Angelo why he was wrong, or even in the fantastic scene where they see their relative uh, in the nursing home where Avon's able to handle it and D's not able to handle it. This is the first time you see D uh, as the one with the backbone and Avon as the one, even though you know that he's going to get out of jail uh, not too long from there, not too long from then. Um, Avon is the one who kind of seems as if he's reaching for something or, or or trying to be something in that moment that he can't be, which is close to his nephew. And it's fitting that that's the last time that they see each other because really a lot of D'Angelo uh, trying to become a man, his own man, should I say, is about breaking away or getting out of the shadow of that one guy. And once again, just before he goes, uh, he's able to do that. Um, uh, just to give people some more backstory. So if when you if you've read All the Pieces Matter, if you haven't, you really should. Jonathan Abrams complete oral history about the wire. Uh in real life, Lawrence Gilliard, who plays um who plays D'Angelo, lobbied very hard with da- David Simon to keep his character alive. He didn't find out till a few episodes in season two that he was being written out and that this is the fate that D'Angelo would meet. Mm. Um, and people have to understand that in the backdrop of this, there was already a bit of tension going on between the actors who, who were all involved in season one with the new actors that got introduced in season two. So it was sort of the double dose of his character being written out at a time where they had introduced this entirely new cast of characters, white characters on top of that, in which I think, uh, at the beginning, and they all admit this in various ways, a lot of the black characters thought this was going to be a, a black story just based off how season one started. And he lobbied for him uh, himself to be continued to be involved in it, you know, basically under the, um, you know, his argument was, look, you've introduced this character who's become the conscious of the show and then you want to kill him. That just seems to be an unfair ending for D'Angelo. But the more I thought about it, even though I totally understand Lawrence Giller's perspective is I just don't think there's any way that D'Angelo could have lived. I no. mean, if he would have, if he would have lived, it would have just been kind of in vain. Kind of, be, it would have met every measure of predictability and by television standards that you just have him live. And what is he just quietly going away in jail? Or maybe you have it where he does eventually become a state's witness. But him dying is way more compelling than him actually living. Even though I have no doubt that based off um, his behavior, based off how his mentality had kind of evolved, that D'Angelo would have sat in that time. Like, he was not going to flip, I think, on his family. He just didn't want to fuck with them anymore, but I don't think he was going to do them in because he did recognize that his mother, the reason she's taken care of and what she's been a part of, that that's forever linked to that. So why would he bring down his own family? Because he wasn't going to bring down his own mother, to me, that seemed to be a very obvious motivation for him to kind of keep quiet, even though I know he started snitching in that direction. Um, so even though he would have been been quiet about it, this seemed to be the only fate he could have met. I can make arguments why Wallace could have lived. It's hard for me to make any arguments why D'Angelo should have. Yeah, I I, I couldn't really make any arguments for either. Um, D'Angelo's storyline was done. His work was done. It, 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 was, it was over. There was... It's a big mistake that television shows make is it's kind of almost like a sports team. It's hard, right? You like was D'Angelo looking for D'Angelo Barsdale couldn't have been given like a Kobe Bryant contract, you know, 
that last couple of years where they were playing God rest, God rest Kobe Soul, that where they were paying Kobe $25 million or whatever. Now, I think in that case, there's a lot of reasons to pay that money to Kobe because he's still box office. He still brings people out and there was no other reason to watch the Lakers. Um, but in a situation like this, what sports teams do a lot of times is they keep players around past their productivity uh, because... You know the old phrase, though, is that you rather get rid of a player a year too early than a year too late. Right. And I yeah. think that's, that kind of rings true here with D'Angelo. It was going to be hard to make the character interesting past this. Like, unless D'Angelo became the leader of a rival drug cartel or, or, or something like that, just watching him readjust, he was in, first of all, he was away for 20. So he was going to spend the rest of his time uh, on the show in prison unless something happened um, to where he was sprung. Uh, he said 10 at the best because he got prior. So he was going to be away for the rest of the show. And I don't think uh, having a whole prison life sort of subplot with D'Angelo Barstow was going to be something that uh, was going to continue the show moving uh, in the narrative evolution um, that it was in. So, And it also didn't fit The Wire, to be honest with you. It's like The Wire, the wire traffics in realism. Like, if this were Empire, D'Angelo stays alive. <laughs> he gets yeah. sprung out of jail, starts a rival uh, record company, and yeah. then they have a whole nother season out of and it. And they have a, Even they have if a this rap were power. Battle. Right. Yeah. And they have a rap <laughs> You know what I mean? Even if this were power, it would end that way. But I was like, no, they were striving for something. He was that done. Real and, life. He was he, done. He, yeah. he was he was done, and it was time for him to go. And, um, you know, Larry Gilliard is a great actor, and I can understand why he wouldn't want to leave a show that was that was that fantastic. But this, to me, was one of the more you know powerful endings of any character that we've seen in the show. So. You know, salute to D'Angelo Barksdale, but he had put his work in. It was it, it was time for him to exit stage left of wire lore. Well, but it also um, kind of keeps with a theme that we've seen in The Wire uh, is that um, you have a lot of times when the characters have just come into a place of either realization or just come to some place where you feel like it's taking them to a different place than they've been before. It's like, yep. He got to get on out of here. <laughs> you know what I did check for? And that's because now you have me paranoid about it. D'Angelo did not order any food before he died. He's one of the few in the wire. No food was involved. No food. <laughs> in, the, in, in the making of this death. Right. And he learned his lesson about that because he hadn't eaten in a long time. We haven't seen D'Angelo eat. Like, basically, after the, the, the pit beef thing, I don't think we've seen D'Angelo eat. By the way, shout out to everybody all the way down in the holers out there. You know, I want to call our fans holers. It's got like a good <laughs> that, little... That definitely just registered. I was like, a little, holers. Hmm. A good little double entendre there. Shout out to all the holers out there. All the holers. Um, it, they've, they've also... I got wire-eating calamities out the wazoo. It's more. More than I even thought. Don't eat in the wire. So, uh, but yeah, he, did, he had nothing to eat. Except for that, he ate, he ate leather belt around the neck and he was yeah. gone. <laughs> Unfortunately, mm-hmm. uh, at this, you know, it's, it's a significant death for all the reasons we listed. And also, um, as maybe we'll discuss a, a little bit later when we talk about File This Away For Later, it's so much File This Away For Later in his death that it's, um, even though he was gone, 
the impact D'Angelo's death, much like Wallace, is felt for the uh, the remainder of, of the series of the series of the mm-hmm. series. So mm-hmm. the one thing I I mean uh, I give David Simon credit for a lot, him and Ed Burns, but even when they killed people, there was always ramifications. There was always reverberations that led to unraveling something else. And I think that's realistic because, Mm. you know, death doesn't happen in a vacuum. Even if it's a death by natural causes, there's always a ripple effect. There's always Always. ramifications. Mm -hmm. So nobody's, there's very few shallow deaths in the wire where it's like, oh, that guy died and that was it. It was like very, very few times, if at all, that ever happens in in the wire. And so D'Angelo was just the example of this. Finally, I'll ask before we move on to uh, the best scene, I think, in there, in this episode. How will you remember D'Angelo? Oh, great question. Um, the frailty. The, uh, the frailty of the show. Not necessarily the humanity of the show. I, I think I'd said that earlier. Um he represented the breaking point. Like so many, so much in the wire, you see people who are so ingrained in what it is that they do and how it is that they operate and move that uh, they have come to terms with who they are and they'll never change. The, the, one of the, the, the great lessons of the wire is that people don't change. You can count on your fingers how many people actually change. Cuddy changes. Uh, later on, we're going to see that bubbles changes, uh, and D'Angelo's change changes. But most people try to be something different than what they are, but they fail because what's outside of them is so great. The forces pushing them back into who they're supposed to be are so great that they're powerless to um to kind of uh to kind of change those situations. D'Angelo represents that battle. He represents someone that we see continuously stare in the face what he isn't every time he looks in the mirror. He talks about it so much. When he's in the restaurant with Donette, he says, uh, you know, you think they know what I really am. The the reality is that uh, what I'm about, the reality is that D'Angelo doesn't know what he's about. He represents every single person out there in any place, anywhere that wakes up every morning and dresses in a lie but has to do it. You're in a lie in your job. You're in a lie in your relationship. You're in a lie wherever you are. Every single uh, person that's doing that, you see it in D'Angelo. Um, and while you want all of those people for the betterment of their lives to realize that what they really should do is live out loud, access who they are, and become real about it, you understand that it's not realistic in a lot of places. It's not something that can actually happen. That frailty, um, that sort of weakness, that's so not weakness, uh, but that sort of commentary on the human condition is what we get from D'Angelo. And you don't really think that there are guys, you know, that are wrapped up in the drug trade that are like that. You know, society doesn't give you that. Society gives you the, the idea of the 11-year-old super predator with fangs, you know, hanging out of his scully, uh, ready to devour everything that's uh, meaningful, pure, or just in the world because that's what these kids are. They're out for blood. 
they're societal vampires. And you don't ever see that some people are just trapped inside of a world that they were born into. You're not going to see that in Bodhi. You're not going to see that in Poot. You're not going to see that uh, in any of those other characters that are down in the pit or at the towers because they're too young. They haven't understand understood their world. Bodhi will understand, but he hasn't understood it yet. Um, but D'Angelo has. And he's cut from a different cloth. He's not Weebay. He's not Avon. He's not Stringer. He's not Stinkum. He's not any of those guys. Uh, rest in peace, Stinkum. Um, um, but he, uh, he is something. He's a human being. Um, and to watch him get chewed up and spit out uh, reminds you of kind of the stakes in that and that there are people who see that what they're doing is wrong, who see that what they're doing is, is hurting people um, and simply don't have the opportunity to, to get out of it. Calling him the conscience of the show is really appropriate. Um, I also, when I think of D'Angelo and how in terms I remember him as somebody who really he was striving to be accountable that doesn't mean he could fix everything that he necessarily did because again the entire series kicks off based off a murder he committed he he did something yeah he killed somebody he did something he killed somebody and I don't think the gravity of that really hit him until the witness wound up dead Mm -hmm. and that's when you saw very early of him suddenly realizing that this environment that he was in, what he was a part of, it wasn't just about what he did to somebody individually. It was about the consequences that created for everybody else that somebody saw. Yeah. you. Okay. So you have created a consequence for them. You forced them into a life decision that they did not know they would be making on that day. And um, just throughout as he continued to grow and mature, like you saw that, is that he is, and that's why in prison, seeing him fully turn over as somebody who was self-aware and accountable. So him getting Gatsby, um, in addition, I thought it was David Simon and Ed Burns reminding us that the not, that the Wire is a novel and not a series mm-hmm. <laughs> by bringing in Gatsby and having D'Angelo, I think, purposely work in a library so we can understand this. But he finally realized is that I can be as accountable as I want. I can, you know, think that things are bad and all of this. But the reality is that none of that matters. What matters is how do my actions change? Mm-hmm. I can't call myself change if I don't change what I'm doing. And I think before he used to think if I think a certain way, if my mentality is different, that's enough. I don't have to change what I'm actually doing. But finally in prison, he understood that, yeah, I got to stop snorting drugs. Yes, I have to stop being a part of the Barksdales. He was finally willing to sacrifice the things that had allowed him to be comfortable uh, in his own lack of consciousness so that he could sit, not just with the time itself of doing 20 years in prison, but to sit and live with everything that he had done and all the ramifications that had come from his actions. So much so, at least the way it sounded, that when he told his mother that he wanted, you know, tell everybody, leave me be. That seemed to even include his own son. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because if he doesn't want to see Donetta, that means he's not seeing his son, which means he thought the price he should pay is really by not being in his son's life because maybe he felt like 
he cost so many other sons and fathers their opportunities. So why should he get his? Right. Why should he live? Why should he take advantage of the Barksdale name and the scheming and get out of prison early? Because he felt like he didn't even deserve that. That level of accountability to have that at a very inconvenient time is how I will remember D'Angelo as somebody who was willing to, frankly, even though it was late in his life, to ride on principle um, because he thought it was finally, he finally understood it was, it was the right thing to do, even yeah. if it was very costly. He took his medicine willingly. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, more Way Down in the Hall. I'm so excited to introduce the Bakari Sellers podcast in partnership with The Ringer. We're tackling the issues of the day through interviews with high profile guests and conversations with a rotating panel of the country's best and leading thinkers, influencers and writers. You know, I'm not only an attorney and a former elected official. Sometimes you see me on CNN and I'm a new author of a New York Times bestselling book, My Vanishing Country. But now we're introducing the Bakari Sellers podcast, and we're going to cover everything from the 2020 election to sports and culture to the larger movement for racial equality in the United States. We're going to have some of your favorite quarterbacks, some of your favorite politicians, some of your favorite athletes, writers, singers, actors, actresses. The Bakari Sellers podcast will debut on Monday, June 29th. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so moving on to best scene of this episode. I don't think there's any dispute. It's Omar in the courtroom. Yeah. <laughs> you are feeding off the violence and the despair of the drug trade. You're stealing from those who themselves are stealing the lifeblood from our city. You are a parasite who leeches off Just like you, the culture man. of drugs. Excuse me? What? I got the shotgun. You got the briefcase. So on the game, though, right? So yeah. much about this scene is so gratifying and rewarding because the thing about The Wire is that you don't get a lot of scenes in it where, honestly, people really get what they deserve. They do maybe sometimes on a, on a, on a micro level, mm -hmm. but on a macro level, it's so many people in this scene that get what they deserve. The fact that Omar is the smartest person in this courtroom, mm -hmm. a courtroom that has your alleged mastermind stringer, McNulty, who thinks he's the best cop that ever copped, Levy, who thinks he's the greatest lawyer of all time, even Judge Phelan, who thinks he's some self-righteous judge, and because he's a judge, he's that much smarter than everybody else. No, no, the smartest person by far was Omar Devon Little, and he sunned everybody yeah. with his testimony. It was such a glorious moment. The only moment courtroom moment only two other courtroom moments i could think that gave me that much pleasure to see it was probably when tom cruise had jack nicholson on the stand and a few good men oh right? oh that's brilliant yeah Ooh. that way do you <laughs> want answers i think i'm entitled to them do you want the truth i what are you i want the truth you can't i love that you can't right handle the truth that's right? that's that's tom's awesome that's maybe tom's best acting right there yeah 
Nino Brown on the stand. I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth, Ms. Hawkins. Mm-hmm. He put all that anger in that Ms. Hawkins. Right. That was my shit right there. I got another one, though. Courtroom moment. It's a time to kill, but not, not the time to kill moment of imagine now. Imagine she's what? <laughs> Jake Brigance? Not, not Jake Brigance. It's the time to kill moment to where Chris Cooper's on the stand. And and uh and Samuel Jackson says, ask him if he thinks I should go to jail for this. And Jake is like, no. What are you talking about? He goes, no, ask him. Ask me if he thinks I should go to jail for it. And then Chris Cooper goes, No, I think he's a hero. You turn him loose. Every I you cry. You turn him loose. You turn him, you turn him loose. And I cry every time. I watched the movie. Every time I watched the movie, yeah, but I, yeah, Omar in that scene, that scene demonstrates so much. Number one, Omar has the game figured out in a way that is so absolutely sublime. No one in The Wire has the game figured out better than Omar. Omar is telling the truth by lying. Think about that. Omar on the stand is telling the truth by lying. He's figured out the game so much that he gets that the only way to get to the truth is to lie. Even and the in, only way to expose the system is by the, turning it against itself. By turning it against itself. Like uh, Omar has Levy figured out. Omar has everything in that situation completely figured out. Levy looks incredulous. Like he is completely beside himself when Omar says just like you who are you talking to Phelan's like he's talking to you like like, I I got a shotgun you got the briefcase it's all in the game it's all in the game and so to me to to sit up there and watch him it is it is the reason why I keep saying Omar is our avatar Omar in the wire is once again it's who Simon and Burns want us to be they want you to be have no allegiance to any system. They want you to have your own set of morality that you can then, um, that's based in something, but then you can take it away and, and unpack it or pack it for yourself that no one tells you what you have to think or what you have to believe. And in that scene, more than any other scene, it's Omar sort of um, demonstrating how he looks at the world, the choices he thinks he has to make. Like, he talks about it. Like, why'd you shoot Mike Mike? I shot Mike Mike because I I thought he should have, he thought he should hold on to his dope and I thought I should have it. You know what I mean? I thought otherwise. (laughs) I thought, like, I thought otherwise. So when you, when you, when you watch that scene, you watch somebody completely, um, almost the exact opposite of D'Angelo. Someone who's accepted a degree of immorality, but is in complete control of who they are and their destiny. And when they see something wrong, they try to make it right. And it, it, it's a it's a weird character to kind of dissect, but he's a hero. He's a, like Omar Little is the hero of the show. Like, does Omar ever do anything wrong? In the wire. I mean, everything he does, you can easily justify. I mean, and maybe the way to look at him as more of as an anti-hero. Like Deadpool was an anti-hero, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Who and that's how Omar is completely throwing out what 
we have come to think of a hero to be. Heroes are supposed to be, quote unquote, perfect. And he tells you from the get-go, I rob drug dealers. That's what I do, okay? He's robbing a particular segment of society that, let's be frank, ain't a whole lot of people got sympathy for, right? Mm -hmm. So he has, in a weird way, even made a moral choice with that. And that's why he's always clear to say, I ain't never put my gun on a citizen. Nobody who wasn't in the game. So to nobody I'm, wasn't in it, right? You know, so so to me, you know, um, it just watching the scene and watching just how calm, cool, and collected he is, it made me want to be a little bit more like Omar. There are no lies with Omar. Omar lives completely out loud, like the anti-D'Angelo. Like I said before, Omar is uh, is 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 unashamed of who he is. Omar is assertive in who he is. And you can't tell him. The only person to ever appeal to Omar to and, and, and really make him feel, we'll see later on, uh, is Bunk. Because that's a point where Omar has to understand, kind of step back and see that his ripping and running does have residual effects on people around him. There are things that happen from it. But as far as things that he, his intention and what he's trying to affect it's pretty pure for the most part. And he, 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 he's, he's a man that has his own code, his own way of looking at the world, and you can't move him off of it. And, that, and in that scene, more than any other scene uh, in the show, that scene demonstrates the expertise um, that's kept him alive doing what he's doing for as long as he's been around. Yeah, and, and to... Um... Then people have to remember his whole motivation for doing this was to avenge Brandon's death. Mm-hmm. That was his whole motivation. So even, even snitching, if you want to look at it that way, is coming from a place of purity of him trying to get revenge yeah. and hit the Barksdales where it hurts for somebody that he loved. Uh, what's also just great about that this uh, scene is so many so much that's great is one he shows <laughs> when when the uh, prosecutor when she told uh, McNulty to dress up Omar and he just comes in with just a tie around his neck <laughs> yeah I even love Which when is, he I, I even love when he walks in and he, he like when he walks in that's one of the just a little ill part when he walks in and he knows just zero fear just shooting at him bang 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 I love I love that whole thing yeah, I mean, he wants to rub this all in Strager's face, everybody associated with the Barksdales. He wants to rub this in his face for them to feel this. Because uh, as he said many episodes ago, he was like, sweet Jesus, they're going to feel this. And he meant every right. word of it. Mm-hmm. And this is no worse fate than um, this is uh, the, the reason why this revenge is sweeter than, say, him even killing Avon, which he tried to do. Mm-hmm. This is better because... The last thing the Barksdales want, because the whole reason that, again, that all the events led to this is because Avon wanted to send fear to the community by killing William Gant, mm-hmm. by showing them you can't stand, uh, stand up to us. You can't overtake us. We're too powerful. Mm-hmm. Omar wanted the entire public to see these dudes really ain't as strong as you think they are. They're not going to muscle up on me. They go around and terrorize y'all because they feel like you guys aren't on equal footing. I got a gun. I'll kill any one of them and I don't care. And I will sit here in open court and testify against them and what they going to do and testify as myself, not under any pretense, not getting a deal, nothing, Mm -hmm. just because I want them to know that I don't fear you. So it was a much, to me, more 
um, a much more sweet revenge to get on them than actually doing what he normally and usually does, which is to turn the gun on somebody. I think probably uh, not just making the, the mockery of the system, which is why he wore the tie the way he did, but him getting the best of Levy might have been my favorite part because nobody throughout the whole series Gets got the best, the best of, Levy. of Levy. He always Nobody wins. did. He always wins. Even mm-hmm. when he looks like he loses, he still wins. Because at the end of the day, as he has firmly established from the get-go, I can represent all you drug dealers because I know what's going to happen to you. Right, right. My pocket's going to be good, right? So he doesn't even look at if somebody like Bird or anybody does time, that's not a loss for him because it's another one coming right through the office. So he doesn't care. Right. What he does definitely, what does bruise his ego is that somebody who in any other situation, he would be able to tear them apart on the stand just based off their criminal history. Omar is so unapologetic about how he lives his life, admitting up front what the truth is that he uses his self-awareness in the truth is like the best weapon against Levy. Levy right. can't embarrass him. You know, you ever been around people who can't be embarrassed? They're the, you know, it's 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 a really strange and crazy thing. Mm-hmm. You can't shame Omar, and Levy figures that out the hard way. So to see him um, kind of done over, the way he slammed that briefcase after Omar testified, it's like he knew that he was too charismatic for the jury, and they were going to buy up every single thing that he said, even though, as you pointed out, this shit was all a lie. He right. never saw Bird. Like, he never saw Bird, but knew that he did it. Omar's truth defeated Levy's expertise. Levy was rendered completely impotent. Even after, when he asked the judge, he goes, listen, uh, we're the victim of wholesale perjury here. Uh, we want, like, a bond while we set up a pill. Felix's like, what? What are you talking about? Like, in this court, like, he killed a witness. Is this guy Jesus? Which I love, by the way. If this guy is not Jesus... I think that he's going away for a little while and I'm going to get to feel good about doing it. To see Levy lose, once again, he loses to the hero of the show. And the hero of the show is Omar. What Omar represents is truth. The Wire, in a lot of ways, is about how a system protects lies, how a system jukes the stats, how a system gets kids to believe in a, um, in a fate that's not real for them, right? You know, even even Bodie, when he says, unless there's some smart ass pawns, that was D'Angelo trying to tell Bodie what the truth was and Bodie choosing to believe the lie. Like the one character in the entire show uh, that represents the truth is Omar. And in that moment, his like his weapon um, of authenticity was the ultimate weapon um, against everything that was going on in that courtroom, which, to be honest with you, was a bunch of lies. And even Omar had to use lies in order to get to the truth, like I said. So for me, just watching that, it's really, in a way, besides one other scene that happens at the very end of the series, um, which I love. It's this, the courtroom scene, maybe it might be the most triumphant scene in the show. It's it's like you getting to see Levy lose is like it's it's gratifying for so many reasons. Because in that courtroom, even between Levy and Omar, I look at Levy as the real parasite. Um, I look at Levy as the guy who doesn't have to use the system in order to have people killed 
and protect people who are killing people. Like everyone has right to a fair trial. And there's a lot of my cousins that are like, what, you want to see me go to jail for doing a little? No, I don't want to see you go to jail, dog. I want you to do better, but I don't want to see you go to jail. But it seems as if the person who's exploiting it the most um, is leaving in a way. And it was just, it felt good as a viewer to kind of watch him lose. It did. Well, um, I was very happy seeing him lose, seeing Stringer lose. And I guess the brilliance of all of this is that so many people won because of what he did. Phelan got to the bottom of who killed his witness. Eileen McNulty, Nathan? Yeah, yep, Eileen Nathan won. McNulty won. Uh, and it was the full circle moment because you start the series of The Wire with McNulty in the courtroom and Stringer Bell has gotten the best of him mm-hmm. because he they get a whole witness to completely change their testimony yep. and that allows D'Angelo to go free. So this is McNulty saying, tell you what, Stringer, sit on this. How you like these apples? Oh, right he says here? it. He says, yeah, we, he says we, ain't on, we, we ain't on the street. Like, yeah, we ain't on the street. He's like, right. you in my territory now. Mm-hmm. Um, and he figured out, he learned from what happened before and knew that the only way he was going to be able to make this conviction stick is that he had to have not only somebody who was willing to testify against the Barksdales in op- open court, but somebody who didn't mind being as much of a rule bender as he has been mm-hmm. in order to do it. Yep. He found the person who had every reason to stick it to them and he used it against him. Um, just brilliant all around. Um, there were a lot of great scenes, as we mentioned. Like this episode is just so thorough, so flawless. Uh, a lot of scenes in this one. What were some of the others that stood out to you? I love the way the the the, the scene in the strip club went with Kima and Prez and Kima's girl. Just because number one, Cheryl coming with Kima, I love. Didn't trust right. Kima. That you know, that's you- almost a we love this show butt moment because really, you gonna let, you you can't let your girl come with you on a police mission in a strip club. Like, I know why she was insistent. We'll, we'll talk, I understand. We'll, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about okay. it. Okay. We'll talk All about right. it. Let's talk about that. I've been through something like that. Like, we'll, like, we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about it. And um, look, I have been to the strip club with my man, too, but we went as a joint visit. Okay? Ooh, we went as a joint. That's what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah! <laughs> yeah! We both wanted to go, go to the strip club. Hey! I bet y'all didn't know Jamel could... Yeah! And boy, oh, Jamel, the Jamel Hill wife stock just soared through the roof. This is what this is why I love doing podcasts because you get to know pieces of your friends that you never knew before. That's what I'm talking about. Look, she look at it. Get all the yeah, y'all having a good time. This is true. I we love went it. To Magic City, we went to Magic City together. It oh, was- who tipped more? Probably I did. Hey, that's what I'm admi- talking about. He was admonishing me for um, not making. He said, "Look, you give it out too easily. It's like you got to make them work for it." He was trying to like educate. I've been in a bunch of strip clubs, right? But mm-hmm. he he changed my tip, <laughs> my free tip, uh, or my my freeness with my tips with my dollars to be. <laughs> Boy, I gotta like because I'm trying to make it rain in that piece. Yeah, you like you gotta make it work for it. Boy, that's crazy. I love him. I love <laughs> you. Got, hey, 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 man. Don't throw another dollar out there to that cheek touches the other cheek. What's wrong with you? Like they gotta clap for the dollar. Um, all that's right. right. He said so, I'm too free with it. So I'm learning. It. <laughs> it's, 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 like, all right. So um obviously that that scene was great. Um, I love when D broke down a great Gatsby, just said so much in that scene. But one that I really, one that I really enjoyed uh, was Cheese getting checked by Sergey. First of all, 
anything negatively that happens to Cheese, I'm with it. All for it. All for the it. The way Sergey dealt with that, it solidified him as white weebay. It was yes. just, it was just so okay. White we bait. Okay. That, that's we based it. Goes up there, <laughs> um, sort of with complete and cheese is just rendered so feckless. Like he just, he just goes up there and just takes it from him right there on his turf with the guns, the whole nine. And then just when you see Nikki's face, Nikki didn't think that that was something that was possible, but you know, Sergey is really real. And so every time I watch that scene, uh, I love it. The scene between Ziggy and Frank is fantastic. Yes. It's, it's a fantastic scene because in that, you kind of start to see how the apple fell so far away from the tree. I'm talking about when they have the discussions and Frank is just trying to talk to his son and and, and, and unscramble the mind that is Ziggy Sabaka. And you kind of now, see I how- know you, you're, you're, you're anti-Ziggy, but did that scene give you any, any sympathy for Ziggy whatsoever? A little bit. Little bit. You see where he's coming from. You see kind of what's going on with him and how things have happened a little bit. And then of course, I actually connected that scene to the the scene with D'Angelo and his mother. That was actually D'Angelo saying goodbye to everybody. Really. That that was the scene where he where he really made his choice. I want you home, Dean. You asked me to carry this. I'm carrying it. This is mine, right here, right now. Oh, he ain't listening to me. I am telling Ma. you. Ma. Ma. Remember we used to live on Linden Avenue? Remember that house? I was about six, seven years old. I was playing on the porch. Them twins came by, started picking on me, messing with me. I'm banging on the door, trying to get inside, and you standing right there to open the door. Except you ain't letting me inside. You told me to go back out there and fight them whether I lose or not. They beat the shit out of you. Yeah. Then you say to me, boy, I might have brung you into this world, but you the one who gonna have to live in it. Yeah, those are um, those are all very, all the same choices I had, but there's one you didn't mention, which I thought, you know, for, for womankind or womankind everywhere, th- this was our moment. This was our moment. This was, this is when I felt like us as a species, us as a gender, we really rose up against the man, hmm. literally rose up against the man. When McNulty got McNultied. By his wife. It was by his wife. It was very gratifying. You talk about triumphant scenes. Hmm. This is also one of the more triumphant scenes in The Wire. So he's trying to woo Elena and he shows up at her office molest the mannequin just to make her laugh, takes her out to dinner, allows her to have her anger moments when she brings up the fact that he's been cheating. He's like, hey, I don't drink like I used to, even though, cut to, we just saw him and Bunk get blasted before. I mean, he wasn't as drunk as Bunk, Mm -hmm. but, you know, he was still partaking, if you will. Mm -hmm. He goes, I want another chance. Elena, the G that she is, the leader that she is, says, how about a fuck for the road instead? Yeah. So, Cut to, that's exactly what happens. But then the next day, the next day, Jimmy all comfortable at the kitchen table, trying to resume his place on the throne in the household. And she's like, tell you what you got to do now, son. Beat it. Go. Beat it. Get your ass. Get to stepping. You know why? Because Elena didn't stand on Plymouth Rock. All right? It stood on her. She was tired of being hoodwinked, bamboozled, and led a stray van. Tired of that shit. 
Yeah. And well, she also knew that she didn't want to be Jimmy's consolation prize because when she asked him about work and he was like, I'm retired because he was talking about his life on the docks. She's like, that's not you. She tell you what's not going to happen is like, you're not going to be sitting up here trying to fill a void with me because you can't be involved in the job the way you want to be in job, the way you want to be involved with the job. I am not going to be that for you, Jimmy. So tell you what, one for the road and then you got to step. And I was like, Elena, you are not the hero that we deserve, but you are the hero that we need. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Your obsession with toxic femininity continues. <laughs> um, I, on the other hand, fell for Jimmy, a man who had made necessary sacrifices to win his life back and was confronted with a monster of toxic femininity, uh, a Madonna-esque 1987 circa uh, usury. Uh, which I used wrong before. I'll use it wrong again. I can't. I, I speak out on behalf of all men who don't want to be used by toxic women um, and have our emotions played with in the very homes where our children sleep that Jimmy Minolte deserved better. He was trying to change and be better. And the fact that she couldn't see that makes her a spider woman black widow. That's what I'll say. I'll, I'll stick up for Jimmy McNulty in that situation, even though he got exactly what he deserved. <laughs> see, man, you call it to- toxic femininity. I call it liberation. And mm. as somebody who is as in tune and is as educated and informed on gender issues as you are, I thought that you would ride for us in this moment. You mean you know how many times we get done in? You know what I was thinking about when I was watching this scene, thinking about how they did my girl Lady Brienne in Game of Thrones. This was for Lady Brienne, okay? Oh, wow. Lady Brienne, who had to sit that there. That was a bad one. Yes, you know what I'm saying? Lady Brienne, all strong. She giving it to people like she is just the picture of female empowerment, only to get done in by handicapped Jamie, right? That's her fault, though. That's her fault. That's her fault, just real quick. That's her fault for falling in love with a pretty face like that, where she had her squire right there. He was obviously in love with her. Yes. Obviously in love with her the entire time. This is what, this what, that's why I say toxic femininity. A good, (laughs) strong, like, loyal, a good guy. A good guy, I mean, but who does she fall a, he for? He was a wildling who was a bit of a cretin, but okay. <laughs> who, who who does she fall for? She falls for Jamie Lannister, Mr. Smooth, Dr. Ice, a guy who's so smooth he, he can seduce his own sister. So Lady Brienne felt like stood no chance. That's what she gets for falling for the pretty face instead of the good man that's holding her down right next to her. That's what I'm talking about. Good for you, Lady Brienne. Goddamn 6'9". You can have anybody you want. Like, what, like... <laughs> no, man. Like, Jamie Lannister, for him to leave Lady Brienne, who finally, mm. he finally found an equal that would take his shit, right? That was going to keep him in check, keep him honest, keep him accountable. And what does he do? Go run it back to his sister. So forget that. What he that. wanted to do was keep it in the family. That's what he wanted to do. <laughs> so, Elena, out McNulty, McNulty, uh. thank you. The female... Females everywhere. Women everywhere. We thank you for that. Chass right. out of here. Love it. Right. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, do you have a what age the best? Uh, daddy issues. 
Um, Ziggy's got daddy issues. That daddy issues are timeless. They're undefeated. Uh, it, it'll never be a situation where daddy issues do not exist. When you see those those issues, those age old things between fathers and sons, until fathers are able to communicate with their sons based upon who their sons are and not who they would want their sons to be, I'm talking to you. <laughs> um, uh, there are always going to be some daddy issues until that. So when I saw that, it struck a chord with me. And anybody else that's had those issues is probably going to strike a chord with them too. So that's actually undefeated. Um, what else did I say? Oh, a fuck for the road. What, what she, when she said a fuck for the road, also aged really well. And as much of a good idea as you think it is, it almost never is a good idea. Never. But when she ask, said ask that. Tom Brady. That's how he wound up with that, one of his oh, kids. Yeah. That's Tommy Tom. Up. That's right. That's um, how he wound up I, with one with, uh, with Bridget. Uh, I can't remember. Right. Bridget Moynihan. Bridget but, um, Moynihan. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah. So those are two things in this episode that aged specifically well. What did you have? Uh, so I, parents overprotectiveness is funny because it was along the same lines that always ages well. Uh, D'Angelo's mother, you know, her, I understand her need for protection, but as I, that's why I mentioned that earlier is that I think as you get older and you become fully formed into the person that you're going to be, your parents sometimes have a hard time accepting that and living with who you become, not necessarily always in a negative way, but because their desire to protect you overrides them allowing you sometimes to be in uncomfortable moments. And that is something that always ages incredibly well. I mean, a parent's love is just going to extend to the ends of time. That's just how they're built. And I understand that. But it was just kind of like, um, you know, you you raised him to be this particular man. You can't be uh, surprised that he has actually turned out in many ways exactly the way that you kind of wanted him to. It's just this isn't how you saw it play play out. You saw him standing tall in the drug game in the scope of what that could do, not necessarily standing tall in something that would be counter to what the lifestyle is for Barksdale's. I'll tell you what aged the worst. And it actually is a combination of a what aged the worst stringer bell fuckboy moment. Giving you a, a double doozy right here, man. Mm-hmm. So when Stringer is setting up D'Angelo's murder, he says something that I hope DC, DMV, where you at, I hope you rose up. Rise up with me right now. When he said, I can't stand that go-go shit anyhow. What a poor, piss poor ass take on go-go music. Part of the essence of black culture, part of the essence of black folks in the DMZ. And your boy, your king, your mastermind stringer, shitting all over go-go music because that's the kind of dude he is. Mr. Farmer's Market, Mr. Hate Go-Go Music. That's your king, Van. Live with it. First of all, you said DMZ. So I mean, you said that the black people, black DMZ. people are in a demilitarized zone in between DMZ. North and South Korea. <laughs> like, Y'all what, know what I meant. Black I people, black people in the DMZ. Look, don't get distracted. Uh, watch out don't get distracted. for Kim Jong Il. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, first of all, here's the thing. DC, don't, 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 oh, don't come for don't me. Don't do it, man. Wait, 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 wait. Don't do it. Wait, I, I like Go Go. I like Go-Go. I do. Okay. I was in D.C. You know, it's good to hear. I even like it when Go-Go, like when, when Wale took the, uh, when Wale had the joint clappers. I wish Wale, well, shout out to my man Wale, one of the most talented people walking the face of the earth right now. One of the most talented people 
love him or hate him, guys, one of the most talented guys in the history of hip-hop. When he took Clappers and he put the go-go joint on there, put the go-go joint on the whole deal, um, I love the go-go sound. I love it. I love when when, when hip-hop fuses with go-go. It's amazing. Oh, look how ashy my shit is. That's crazy. I hold that up for the camera. <laughs> Well, at least look we know how, you've been uh, washing uh, your hands. Yeah, that's because like, I'm washing my hands. But um, not everybody likes it. You know how many people, like when I when I visited D.C. and I came back uh, as a teenager and I tried to drop some, D- some go-go tapes on my dudes, they weren't fucking with it. Like, not a lot of people like it, man. And it's so D.C. that if you're in Baltimore and you kind of like, uh, if, if there's a little rivalry, because, you know, Baltimore got like the the... The young Lee shaking, jiggling, the club music. They got their own vibe. So maybe he don't like Go-Go. What that mean? Like, you like... No way. Poor maybe take. he don't like Go-Go. Poor take. Maybe, maybe he not... There's parts of it. People got different types of music. And sometimes different regions like different stuff. And they not fucking with it. That's the only thing. So Stringer don't yeah. like Go-Go. I like Go-Go. Stringer didn't like it. That's kind of how it is. Again... Yet another one of his reprehensible uh, qualities. Um, At least he didn't of- say nothing about Marion Barry. That's all, because that's the real way. That's oh, the real way to get DC. <laughs> Look, the real way to get DC to stop fucking with you is to say anything negative about Marion Barry. If Stringer would have been in that car and he would have said something about Nar- Marion Barry to that guy, that guy would have killed Stringer. Don't say nothing wrong about Mayor Barry to the people in DC as a hero. So he chose the lesser of insulting instead the music that has made their entire cultural brand. I get it. I get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is what it is. Stringer probably don't even like crabs. You know what I'm saying? He's probably from Baltimore, don't even like crabs. That's the kind of dude he is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Farmer's market head ass. Anyway, a mm-hmm. um, lot of file this away for later moments, uh, I thought, in this one. Um, Nikki Meeting Prop Joe. Uh, is mm-hmm. is a big file this away for later. Also, uh, you talked to we discussed it earlier that scene in the strip club with uh, Kima, her girl Prez. The fact that yeah. Cheryl accused her of having a bit of a wandering eye. File that one away. Yes. Um, file that did one you away. Have, yeah. Did you have some file the, this away for later moments? Uh, Omar's get out of jail free card. Yep. From Eileen Nation. From Eileen Nation is a file that away for later. Obviously, the biggest moment, uh, it, the biggest file that away. But later moment um, in the history of the show is D'Angelo's death to me. Uh, it's because the ramifications of that, to me, are going to be uh, the biggest felt. So I think that's the biggest one. But then Omar's Get Out of Jail free card is also a big file this away for later moment as well. Uh, yeah, and um, I would also say... Frank lying to the union about where the money is coming from. The money coming from. Yeah, mm-hmm. from uh, for their lobbyists and political political connection. He tells an outright lie to all his union brothers about mm-hmm. where that is going. Also, um, you know, moving on to another category, the best phrase in this episode. How could it not be cadaverous, motherfuckers? Love it. Said by Prop Joe. If it wasn't for Sergey here, you and your cuz both would be cadaverous, motherfuckers. Cadaverous motherfuckers, something that's not put together often. Is cadaverous a word? I don't know, but he made it sound like it was. Right. It's just, it's just such a, it's such an ill way to say it. Yeah. Like, cause it's it like, it's like you and your cousin would have both been cadaverous motherfuckers. <laughs> I'd have killed you both. Um, and it's, it, and it's a, 
it's a rare threat and show of force from Prop Joe. Like we don't really see that that much from him, but and and that's why it's like such a such a great phrase. I had that written down too as the quote of the episode. Yeah, definitely. Um, oh, just w- one more uh, file this away for later that I I didn't get to is I would I would just put it in the bucket of the continued belittling of Ziggy is a big mm-hmm. every time it happens yeah. that should be a file this away for later moment. So when uh you know Nikki told Ziggy uh stay at home watch cartoons and let me handle things it's like the look on Ziggy's face is like yo the disrespect the it's being, yeah it's mountain the oh, being overlooked not being acknowledged like that shit is reaching you know kind of a a, a pivotal point with him so they're just kind of building what will be a pretty explosive uh turn of events i think as as season 2 wears on uh Bunk and McNulty do not disappoint with a blood alcohol level that clearly shows that Bunk may have alcohol poisoning the next day when he's throwing up in Daniel's office in his trash can. That is yeah. what I, that, that is like, hell, I was like, is, he, shit, he's acting this so well. I feel like he really is hungover, sweating and everything. Do you know what I was doing when, when, when I was watching that scene with Bunk, uh, when they were drunk and he pulled his gun out? Tell me you were I didn't drinking. remember the scene. I wasn't drinking. I was like, like I, I didn't really remember the scene. So I was on edge for whether or not Bunk was going to shoot. Because if Bunk would have shot, then the, it trivia. That, then the trivia, I was like, is Bunk about to shoot his gun? Is Bunk, I was, I was, I had, I had, I had your number up. I had the contact pulled up. And if he shot it, I was going to tap that motherfucker so fast, but he didn't shoot. That no, trivia you, still blows my mind. That still blows my mind, that piece of trivia. You should have waited you guys, and totally surprised me with that and been like, look at this. Look, but it he, was wrong. But he, but he didn't shoot. It he remains true. Prez is the only cop that shot his gun in the whole series. It's amazing. It's amazing, guys. It, it's Prez. Uh, McNulty body count uh, of one, Elena. One. Um, yeah. Uh, Does it count, though? Does a body count? Does it count? If it's a count. body you've already had. I'll just say he, yeah. got a, he caught a body. Maybe not a he body. He caught a count. body. He caught a body. Yeah, gotcha. Really, she yeah. caught a body because that was all her. Really, she, yeah, she did. Shout that out was to her, her body. Man. And I don't think it, nobody's had more sex on the show than McNulty, right? Like nobody. Uh, anybody, nobody else hardly had any sex. Right. I mean, there's a couple scenes, I think, with Kima, but like, nah, Kima, Kima, Kima had some sex. Uh, I guess we we saw the beginning of Stringer and Donetta's lovemaking, but we never saw them actually having sex. Thank God. There, was other, <laughs> there were other people who had sex, but there wasn't much sex being had besides um, uh, besides McNulty. Uh, since uh, I think uh, Daniels and uh, Daniels and what's your oh, name have sex? Daniels and you're right. Oh you're, well, maybe. Oh, you're right. Spoiler. Sorry. Spoiler. <laughs> Spoiler. Alert. Maybe. Maybe. Actually. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to need y'all, go ahead and bleep that second name. Bleep it. Because we're not listening to you guys and your spoiler that's, shit on Twitter. That's All right. right. We're going to act as if we don't know what's going to happen next. So, right. my bag. Uh, all right. Finally, some trivia. We get a, a, a appearance by someone who became an ancillary favorite character in The Wire, and that would be your girl, Shardine. Chardine is, is in the full glow up right here. Chardine. Chardine. Lester Chardine. When do we see Chardine in this episode? 
Shardine is in this episode. She makes her last appearance in the oh, wire because Kima with the goes glasses. Yes, yeah, See, yeah, 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 yeah. I keep forgetting. <laughs> I keep forgetting with the glasses and yes. the um and when she's she's completely gone full housewife. I, I it's so crazy that I don't even think about that as being Shardine. <laughs> Right when they go over there, she's going glasses, full housewife, short hair. She got the PTA hair. Yeah, the whole nine. Yeah, and this is a, that's her last time. Chardin's glow up is arguably the best glow up of the entire series of anybody. Anybody. Mm-hmm. She went from dancing in Orlando's, which doesn't exist now because the feds shut that down, right? She was a half blind stripper living with a drug dealer. To now yeah. she can fully and clearly see and she being taken care of by a cop and she in nursing school. And she in nursing school and by a cop that got money, by the way. Because remember, right. Lester makes Lester makes a lot of money selling his dollhouse miniatures. So it's a lot of bread she's getting too. Yeah, man, Chardine really came through. It's, re- it's weird that Chardine and D'Angelo got free in the same episode. Mm, but in much different ways, right? In much, much different ways. ways, but in the same episode, they both finally found what they were looking for. Crazy. Yeah, so this is, the trivia is, this is the last appearance of Chardine in The Wire. She's not in there anymore uh, after this episode. You know, honestly, between Chardine and Elena, I mean, I, I just felt like so much female empowerment that came through in The Wire because <laughs> uh, all those who watched the rest of the series, you know that... Um, there is a uh, there's some terrible female characters that come along. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, there are they're awful. So Chardine and Elena held us down. Don't y'all forget this. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, there you have it. All right, finally, Van, moment of truth. Who won the episode? Ah, uh, you know, man, this is the last time we're gonna see my boy and everything that we said. It's hard not to give it to D'Angelo. It, it, you know, it's hard, it's hard not to give it to D'Angelo Barksdale here, man. Uh, just one of the more sensational storylines in any show ever. Uh, one of the more grounding storylines, one of the more impactful and powerful storylines. Um, and, you know, on your rewatch, when you lose D'Angelo, when D'Angelo is gone, when that final scene happens and he slides away from that doorknob, uh, which I never heard of anyone hanging themselves on a the doorknob before then. I guess that happens, but I don't know. Doesn't seem like it's enough. But when he slides away on that doorknob, you really feel like you lost something. And um, just the fact that on the rewatch, when you rewatch it, uh, he was murdered. He went out exactly the way so many of the kids from West Baltimore go out, but it's still in a way was on his own terms. Like they they killed him because they couldn't control him. Uh, which is so often kind of how those situations go. But, you know, having said that, I think that the the winner of the episode is D'Angelo because of what the character got in this episode, which is weird. Um, not that he wanted to die, but he did get what he always wanted, which was to break away and 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 have his own conscience, his own movement, his own freedom uh, of existence. And he he finally got that. So it's hard not for me for me not to go with him. That's a, a really good and a, a different perspective to have on it. Cause I think a lot of people would look at a major character death as a loss, but I completely get what you're saying with this particular character because of, of everything we saw him go through 
And ultimately what he wanted was to be able to live life on his own terms. And granted, his life was taken away from him. But there is some satisfaction in that before he was murdered, that he'd actually done the thing that he kind of most wanted to do. Uh, For me, the winner of the episode is Omar, because uh, Mm. Omar uh, made a mockery of the system. He turned he used all the system's weaknesses against it to illuminate how I would call it broken, but it kind of works as intended. But um, but he still used the system against itself. And for him to make such a public stand against the Barksdales uh, was I, I would call it courageous. But that implies that it's something abnormal for Omar. And it's not it's who he is. And mm-hmm. I think for a lot of people who maybe up until this point did not understand Omar or maybe even didn't like his character or didn't think his his character fit um, in in this tale of of inner city Baltimore. If this scene did not win you over and make him, if not your favorite character, but at least in the top three and not three, then there's just no hope for you whatsoever. Mm-hmm. This should have been the scene that put away any doubt about where his character stood in the pantheon of wire characters for him to be the smartest person in the room. And the thing is, this was all about, if you think about before the court, the court scene, when he tells the bailiff officer, the the court officer, what the word is, what the, uh, the answer in his crossword puzzle is. Omar mentally mm-hmm. flex, like usually we're used to him flexing with his gun in every episode. I mean, he certainly always shows how savvy and crafty he is, but this sure. was what we're mostly used to from this is one of the, if not the only episode where from start to finish, Omar dices people, but not with a gun, but with how right. smart he is and how much he's peeped their system and understands its weaknesses. So he was to me, hands down. Not just, the, not the just smart. But cultured, yes, to know about Under, Greek un- mythology, <laughs> understands things outside of himself, which means that he has perspective on things, right? And and that's kind of what you saw. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Yeah, no. So he was by far the winner. If I had to pick a one A, it's Chardine and Elena. Yes, we rise, uh- <laughs> we rise, man, we rise. Despite y'all trying to keep us down, we rise. And still, we rise. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Um, As always, continue to listen to us and keep watching The Wire. We'll see y'all next time. We rise! I have been to the strip club with my band, too, but we went as a joint visit. Okay, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah! Yeah! Whoa! Hey, I bet y'all didn't know Jamel could tell.